God is good. All the time. time. It is wonderful to see you. Welcome to everybody who joins us online and to everybody at our CM campus. I want to say a very special thank you to Kevin Siddle for so ably leading us through Advent. Kevin, thank you, sir. I also want to let you know we're going to have a little bit of... uh, of a change and then a lot of the same concerning the music. I, I want to announce that uh, Landon and Stevie will be our new worship leaders on Wednesday night. So they were here. Donovan, Jesse, and the team are going to continue with us. Thank you to our tech folks. Thank you to everybody who makes this service. I was able to worship with you uh, online for several of the services, and what an incredible blessing. It comes through in such great quality. You you really can just lean into it, and so I just want to say thank you to everybody for making this happen. It's been a few weeks since we all left Colasse, so I think a quick review is in order, if not complete retraining. (laughs) Colossians was probably written or dictated by Paul, from a Roman prison sometime in the very early 60s AD. The letter was delivered by Tychicus. Colossae was located about 100 miles east of Ephesus in a region called Phrygia. It was a minor stop on an ancient highway that ran through what is now Turkey. We will be visiting this region on pilgrimage later this year. How, How is that? We'll be visiting this region. If you've got some interest in looking into that trip, there's still plenty of time. And there are brochures right out at the Sink Center. Our first official meeting, not recruiting meeting, but official meeting, will be on the 14th at 2 o'clock, on Sunday the 14th at 2 o'clock. So there's still plenty of time. And I'm asked about, you know, everything's going on over there. We're flying into middle Turkey, and we are heading west Uh, We're not going to be close to any of the conflicts that are going on. And then we're flying to Greece. So I wouldn't be afraid to go now. Uh, And my sincere hope is that things in the world will be even calmer by the time we leave in September. Uh, Minority population of Jews had resided in Colasse for at least 200 years It was located in the Lycus River Valley. It had once been really, really important, and now it wasn't quite so much. I don't know if you guys know a lot about St. Louis history, but are you aware at one time St. Louis was like the fifth largest city in the United States? Well, it's not now, right? And and ancient Colossae was a little bit like that. Its past had been a little bit more glorious than its present. It was also becoming increasingly isolated, And fewer and fewer people from the outside were coming in. And so thought in Colossae was getting increasingly parochial, if you will. That the city was significant enough to warrant a letter from Paul is really surprising because he usually wrote to more important places. And I think the only way to explain is that Paul got a ping. And this really gets us back to something important. When God puts a ping on your heart, don't overthink it. You know, Paul might have said, you know what, Uh, I feel like I should write a letter to Colossae, but it's not really that important. There might not have been 100 people there to read it. But 
God knew there's always more going on than what's going on. People have been reading that letter for about 2,000 years now. And so there's always more going on. So go with those pings. That's certainly what Paul did. The Christian movement is spreading like wildfire across the Roman Empire. And since there's no New Testament as we know it or official orthodoxy as we know it, Christian teaching could vary widely from church to church. That's why it's important to me since we've become an independent church that if you get on our website, you can go right to our beliefs. We want to be really clear and upfront about what we believe. Well, we're able to say that. We're able to do that. But in this era, uh, Christian belief was just all over the place. The Colossian church seemed to have been primarily Gentile. And this version of Christianity that formed there is a little unique. It's a discordant fusion of Judaism, early Christian teaching, popular Greco-Roman philosophy, and this odd sprinkling of celestial spiritism. If you kind of had to sum it up, they were sort of weirdos. Uh, It was just all over the place. Paul was convinced that this unique confluence of religious thought contained a dangerous theological virus. I want to be real clear on something. If you study the Bible, there are several things you could go either way on. You could just go either way. There's some stuff, even if you get wrong, you'll still be all right. But there's some stuff you can't get wrong. And Paul was really concerned that they were getting the stuff wrong that you can't get wrong. And that really is what prompted the letter. So it's called the the Colossians heresy. So let me just quickly go over sort of what they believed. And what's really interesting is some of that stuff is around today. But let me go over the aspects of the Colossian heresy. Here we go. Number one, they believed that God was distant, not close. All right? So we might call it a dispassionate God, a God who's far away, not close. Number two, there's low to no Christology. Christology just means the role of Jesus. So if you know people that don't think that, well, they think the Jesus stuff, that churches talk about Jesus too much, a lot of times it's because they truly believe that what Christianity is about is helping people be good people who do good things. Well, I tell people all the time, the mission of our church is not to do good things. It's to connect people with Jesus. That being said, we're going to do all kinds of good things. But that's not the mission. So there's low to no Christology. What Jesus did on the cross was de-emphasized at best. There was plenty of Jewish legalism. They had lots of religion. And let me tell you something. There's nobody more difficult to deal with than somebody with lots of religion. Oh, they may be wrong, but they're never uncertain. Number three, they believed that they had special knowledge. You ever been around people that deep in their heart think they're smarter than everybody else? Uh, This is that. Number five, uh, they were spiritualists. We have a lot of spiritualists today. Let me tell you things spiritualists say. We'll play Jeopardy. Things spiritualists say for 400. Uh, All religions are essentially the same. That's the kind of stuff... Spiritualists say, I believe in a higher power. That's the kind of stuff spiritualists say. It is a non-specific belief set. There was a lot of that happening. And then finally, there was angel worship. They worshiped angels. That's not huge now. I mean, in the 90s, we were plagued with television shows about angels, but nobody really worships angels. But this is what was happening in Colossae. Paul wrote to encourage the things that the Colossians had right 
and to refute what they were getting wrong. It's always a good thing for us to pray. Lord, reinforce in me what I'm getting right and remove from me what I'm getting wrong. There was a need for a standard set of beliefs about Christ. And I think that's why Colossians is so high on Christology. I mean, he makes claim after claim about who Jesus is. And for Paul, he claims that we are made right with God through the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, period. That's the piece you can't get wrong. You see, if you're trying to get to God and get to heaven by being a good person, you will miss heaven. You will miss heaven. We are made right with God because we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We can't be good enough for God. So Paul is really leaning hard into it's not what you know, it's who you know, and who you need to know is Jesus. Jesus is all we need. So Paul's going to make some claims about Jesus. We'll review them really quick. Number one, Jesus is God. That was huge. Not everybody was buying into that. Number two, Jesus was the catalyst of creation. So Jesus didn't just show up in Bethlehem for a Christmas appearance. He was around since creation. Number three, Jesus is supreme over creation. Not only was he a chef, he was the head chef. He is supreme over all of God's creation. Number four, Jesus is the head and the church is his body. That is a metaphor, but it's an important one. Uh, There's a lot of argument today as denominations continue to implode as to who's the head of the church. And what I'm going to tell you, if Jesus isn't the head of the church, you don't have a church. You might have a charity, you might have a club, you might have a civic organization, but you don't have a church. If Jesus isn't the head, you don't have a church. Number five, Jesus reconciles us with God. Jesus makes us right with God. Number six, Jesus makes us holy, set apart, and blameless before God. I'm going to stop here a minute because this is huge. If you, don't, if you have bad theology and you have a troubled past, Satan will beat you up every day of your life over it. And every time he does, he will lower your ceiling. And at some point, you got to tell the devil to get lost. And what Paul argues is that Jesus makes us holy and righteous before God because we do not stand in our own holiness and in our own righteousness. We stand in the righteousness of Christ. We used to sing a song back in the early days. It said, and when he looks at me, he sees not what I used to be, but he sees Jesus. God sees the Jesus in us. He makes us holy and blameless before God. When you look in the mirror, you need to stop seeing yourself as a hopeless sinner. And you need to start seeing the Jesus that lives in you. Number seven, Jesus invites us to walk with him. Isn't that cool? He invites us to walk with him. You ever hear that old gospel song, I'm going to stroll all over heaven with you? Oh, it was quite awful, really. But uh, what a cool concept. You know, Jesus invites us to walk with him. Uh, He says in other places to abide with him. Jesus must have a relationship with you. He must have a relationship with you. Wow. Number eight, Jesus roots us. And that's what we do here. We root ourselves in scripture. 
We, we are rooted, and when you're rooted, you can withstand the storms. Number nine, Jesus unlocks all God has for us. You have potential. I believe that there was a purpose for which you were created. And I think we either live into part or none or all of that purpose. And the, that is our potential. The difference between where we are and what we were created to be is our potential. Think of it in terms of athletics. When I was in high school, I was an okay high jumper. I was an okay high jumper. I was a good hurdler and an okay high jumper. But they always had me high jump because the best high jumper jumped better when I jumped with them. I think it's because he knew he could beat someone. And so every year, the coach would put out this thing saying what my potential was. You have the potential to jump this high. And I would look at that and I thought, you got to be kidding me. There's zero chance I can jump that high. And coaches say, Shane, you're going to jump this high this year. And I'm sitting there thinking, not a chance. Just not a chance. And you know what? As long as I believed that, it was true. And then I graduated from high school and I was running hurdles in AAU meets. And uh, I would just sign up for the high jump because it's sort of boring to sit around with nothing to do. And I would sign up for the high jump. Guess what happened? I reached that potential. I stopped telling myself I couldn't do it. I just did it. Coach was right all along. Here's what I need you to hear. Jesus says you're of great value. Jesus says he's got a purpose for your life. So who are you to say anything different? He's, gonna be, he's right all along. Number nine. Number ten. Jesus empowers us. Jesus will never ask us to do what he doesn't empower us to do. If he asks you to live a certain way, he will give you the power to do that. You see, a lot of bad theology today started the very moment people decided that God couldn't change people. If God can't change people, you're left with one dynamic. If God can change people, if God does empower us to live the life he asks us to live, everything is different. Number 11, Jesus forgives us. You're not always going to get it right. You're not always going to get it right. You say, well, I get it right most of the time. Eh, you probably don't even get it right nearly as much as you think. Uh, but when we stumble, when we fall, we have the opportunity to ask for forgiveness. It's a really cool thing. When I was a kid, uh, we used to travel a lot because that's what we did. And dad would buy us these things. And I don't know what they were called. But they had kind of a, an oil, kind of rubbery surface on the back. And then they had a plastic sheet of paper. And then there was a, a stylus of some kind, a plastic stylus. And you literally could write on the plastic. And you could see what you were writing because the stuff in the back came through. But then when you were all done, you went like this. And it all went away. Well, at least 80% of it went away. You know, but it just all went away. That's kind of what forgiveness is. Jesus just takes the sin that we have written in our life, and he just makes it go away. He forgives us. And because he forgives us, some of you need to forgive yourself. You say, well, I've hurt people, okay? And they're not, they're not going to forgive me, okay? But Jesus will forgive you. And we got to make things right where we can and realize we're not always going to be able to make things right. But we had to forgive ourselves and we got to move on. If Jesus says you're forgiven, who are you to say you're not? 
Who are you to say you're not? Isn't it amazing how often we think we're smarter than Jesus? And then finally, number 12, Jesus vindicates us. If, if we stand for Jesus, not only will he deliver us, he will vindicate us. I love the 23rd Psalm because it's got a how do you like me now piece to it. He prepares a table before me in the presence of they get to watch me eat a banquet that Jesus is serving. It's unbelievable. He vindicates us. And then number 13, Jesus gives us a new perspective. A new perspective. I, I like sunglasses. I, I don't know why. I think they cover up part of my face, and that feels like a win. But uh, I like sunglasses. But every sunglass pair that I have has a different lens. And they all have a little bit different tint. And so the world looks different according to which sunglasses I have on. When Jesus is the Lord of our life, we start seeing through his lens. And let me tell you something. His lens looks a lot different than ours. And those are the claims that, Je that Paul has made about Jesus. Those are huge claims. Paul now follows this careful theological work by giving us a really practical list of unhealthy things to look for in our lives. So we might think of these as symptoms to a very serious disease. Uh, a lot of times, if you're sick, and, and a lot of people have been sick lately, I was asked the week before Christmas Eve services, or Christmas services started, they said, what do you mainly do the week before all these Christmas services? I said, I mainly stay away from people so I don't get sick. Because there is not a plan B. I mean, if I crash and burn, I mean, I don't know what we're doing. Sock puppets, maybe? I, I don't have any idea. There is not a plan B. So these are symptoms to look for. A lot of times in our lives, we have symptoms. And sometimes those symptoms go away, right? But if they don't go away, sometimes they are indicators of something far more serious. And that's what Paul is going to give us here. This kind of spiritual work is what the old-time Methodists called sanctification or the renewal of our fallen natures. And for me, sanctification refers to the process by which the Holy Spirit makes Christians Christian. Some of you may have accepted Jesus and now you're a Christian, but you're really not Christian yet. You're a Christian, but you're not Christian yet. There is character that devolves it evolves in you. There is stuff that happens. You see, if, if God's plan was just to get us to heaven, the second we, we accepted Christ, wouldn't he just beam us up? You know, you'd say to your kid, don't accept Christ right now, and he'd take trash out, right? I, I, but God would just beam us up. Well, he doesn't. There is work God does in us, and then there is work God asks us to do. Those are the two dynamics, and God is continually doing his sanctifying work in us. The Holy Spirit work reflected an ongoing progression of Christian maturation that the old timers called going on to perfection. You ever hear the term? Going on to perfection. It doesn't mean you're going to be flawless. The Greek word for perfect doesn't mean flawless. It means fully mature. It means to fulfill the purpose for which a thing was created. You don't have to be flawless to be perfect in the Greek. So what it's really saying is going on toward that perfection, toward that Christian maturity. And what is it we're trying to become like? We are trying to grow more Christ-like. And the Holy Spirit is in a constant process 
of doing the Spirit's work in our lives to make us more Christ-like as we walk through life. The big idea is that as we walk with Jesus, root ourselves in God's word, that God will continually prune from our lives things that run contrary to the nature and value of Christ. And we have to be open to that. And I think it's really difficult today when a lot of people really come to church for therapy. A lot of people really come to church to hear, no matter what you do or what you're doing, you're just okay. Well, the Bible is really not an exercise in therapeutic deism. What the Bible is about is forging us, molding us into the character of Christ. And sometimes that is painful stuff. Have you ever read the Bible and God just revealed something to you? It's just painful. You know, what we want God to say is, you're awesome. And God does say you're awesome. But here's some things that Jesus needs to get a hold of in you. So claim number 14 is that Jesus purifies us. Five and six. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of the world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. All right. Sin means to miss God's intentions for our lives. It literally means to miss the bullseye that God has set for each of us. I define sin as being anything less than everything God created us to be. A lot of times, we think of sin as what you get wrong. Theologically, sin is just, about, just as much about what we fail to get right. It's just to miss the mark. Paul gives us three sinful categories that can get out of hand really quick. Each represents battles that we all fight on one hand, and frankly, battles we can't afford to lose on the other. So let's look at three symptomatic things that indicate that something is wrong in our spiritual life if we have these things lingering. If we got these things raging in our lives, we're in trouble, all right? Number one, the inappropriate application of human sexuality. He says, have nothing to do with sexual sin, and that includes impurity, lust, and shameful desires. So here's the deal. If sex is your God, something's wrong, period. Sex in its Christian context is a Wonderful gift, but a terrible God. Christian teaching brought two very radical things to the Roman world concerning human sexuality, and it never gave on this. There is an ethic for sexual chastity in singleness and a demand for sexual fidelity in marriage. These were radical. A lot of times people say, gosh, if that's what you're... Talking about today, that's really radical stuff. It was just as radical when Paul wrote this stuff. Have you read about the Roman Empire? Those people were decadent. Paul's teachings are absolutely countercultural in every way. And please understand that the concept of chastity for the unmarried would have been just as countercultural in the first century as it is today. But the concept of fidelity in marriage would have been much more countercultural than it is today. 
The idea that human sexuality is a gift to be shared exclusively between a man and a woman in monogamous, lifetime, lifelong marriage is a uniquely Christian one. Paul writes to a culture in which extramarital affairs were the absolute norm. The absolute norm. Many upper-class Roman wives were basically sequestered to raise a legitimate family. They had almost no lives whatsoever while their husbands did whatever they wanted with whoever they wanted all the time. Paul's teachings, such as husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, were utterly revolutionary. They were also part of the reason that the early Christian movement really appealed to women. Now, we got a lot of revisionist theologians now who are going to claim that Paul is anti-woman. These people have no historical understanding of the Greco-Roman first century culture. Paul's teachings uh, absolutely are empowering to women. And part of it is he's saying to their husbands, you need to behave yourself, boys. Number two. Inappropriate application of human needs. He says, don't be greedy for the things this world has to offer. If materialism is your God, something is wrong. If you sit around every day and think about what you want. If somebody says, what do you want for Christmas? And you pull out a list. If you're consumed with just wanting things. If you watch commercials and everything you see, you want That is a problem. There's nothing wrong with having things. And some things you just need to have. But when things have you, you're in real trouble. This verse refers to an obsessive desire to obtain and acquire for the purpose of status and identity. This is close to the prohibition in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet It's an overt attempt to fill the central role that God demands in our lives with material things. Rather than say my identity is in Christ, materialism says my identity is in my rank, it's in my position, it's in my house, it's in my education, it's in my bank account, it's in my achievements. If there's something you want more than Jesus, whether it be a good thing or a bad thing, a necessary thing or an unnecessary thing, it has become an idol to you. And an obsessive desire to have it is sin. You gotta have stuff, but stuff makes a terrible God. Makes a terrible God. Verse seven, you used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world. We are to be holy, set apart for a special purpose. In the New Testament, the ultimate punishment of those who reject God is the removal of God's presence. We always think of fire and brimstone, right? That's actually not uh, the ultimate punishment. Jerusalem gets destroyed on a somewhat regular basis, and God's people are punished and taken into exile, but there's always hope from the prophets. You're going to be in exile a while. Jerusalem will be down for a while, but God will restore. But the ultimate punishment is just when God walks away. When God just walks away, there's a a word called Ichabod, the removal of God's presence. It's it's one of the most horrible words in the language. You know, it's when a coach truly gives up 
on a player. They don't yell at them anymore. Right? You ever, you ever, I, I remember when I was a coach, I, I would have players, and, and I'd get on them and get on them and get on them. And after a while, you feel like you're chasing a parked car. They're not moving, and you wonder why you have a headache. And, and I would just stop. I just stopped. They probably thought their life got a whole lot better. And boy, did they get to watch the games a whole lot more. Because I gave up on them. That's a pretty tough place to be. When God's presence is removed, we're simply on our own. And it should not be surprising that a modern culture who has thrown the God to whom the Bible testifies out of the public sphere, it's not surprising that we would be teetering on confusion and chaos and collapse on one hand, and immersed in violence, vehemence, and vitriol on the other. If you rely upon sexual conquest and material things to define who you are, you are in soul danger. And what's really odd here is this idea, you, you may get what you want, and if you do, you'll have nothing. And it'll cost you everything. Number three, inappropriate application of human emotion. Oh, this is wonderful in our culture. Because have you noticed, people were sort of nuts before the pandemic, but they're really wacky now. It is amazing to me how fragile people are, how quickly people lose it, and how few filters they truly seem to have. Verse 8 says, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Have you ever... It is amazing to me how much language has deteriorated since I was a boy. People used bad language when I was a boy, but if you used it in certain contexts, somebody was going to drive his fist through your nose. Uh, people were offended by that, and they would call you out on it. And now bad language is not only prevalent, I'm going to push a little bit here, is that okay? But we invite it into our homes through cable television. Well, but that show's got a good plot. Okay, good plot and 50 F words. How's that working for you, soul? Okay, you were entertained for an hour. Now you've been desensitized to a whole lot of things. How's that working for you? Just how's it working for you? Not getting all judgmental. Just how's it? Work it. If your raw emotions control you, something's wrong. If you're always flying off the handle, something's wrong. If you are always trying to quiet this sense of rage you have inside, something's wrong. You say, well, I'm able to control it. Something's still wrong. Emotions are a natural part of how humans were created. Do you guys realize the Bible records that Jesus got angry? And the Bible equally teaches that Jesus was without sin. So clearly there's some things about which we should get angry. Some stuff ought to make us mad. But we can't be controlled by impulse. Since the Greek doesn't offer us much here, let's turn the negatives into positives as we look at this list. That, and, and let's look at what we're for rather than we're, what we're against. I think it's a better way to look at this. So let's just say if the work of Jesus is being done within us, we will. Here's some things we will do. Are you ready? We will be level-headed. Yeah. 
steady. If Jesus' work is being done within us, we will get more and more level-headed. B, we will control our impulses. We'll just be able to control our impulses. You say, well, I have impulses of rage. That's not great. But I think we can learn to control those and manage them. One thing I'd really suggest you do is, is have the practice of turning your impulses into a prayer. So whatever that impulse is, just turn that into a prayer. Catch those things. Lord, I just feel a lot of rage right now. I know that's not of you. Would you just do your work with me? Just catch it. Just, just catch it. See, we'll behave decently. We'll behave decently. You realize we're at a time when a lot of people who apply for jobs in some sectors don't get jobs because they post stuff on social media in which they weren't behaving decently. You know? Well, you're just dumber than a bag of hammers if you do that, aren't you? But if Jesus' work is being done in us, we'll behave decently. It doesn't mean we won't have fun. We'll have a marvelous time. We just won't get stupid. Number six, we're going to be kind. We're going to be kind to people. Did you know you don't have to agree with somebody to be kind? You don't have to approve of somebody's lifestyle to be kind. You can just be kind to people. You can do that. We're not going to agree on everything, but Christian people should agree that we should be kind. Number eight, we're going to keep our motives pure. This is a little hard work because we're often pretty easy on ourselves on some things and really hard on other things. But keeping pure motives just means we want to just make sure you're doing the right things for the right reason. So always ask yourself that. Why am I doing this? Am I doing this to help them or to help me? Am I doing this to glorify God or to bring glory to myself? Uh, those are great questions for Christians to ask. Number F, if the work of Jesus is being done in us, we will encourage one another. Lift each other up. Help each other along. Encourage. And then number G, we will speak undefiled words. I think one of the really simple things that Christians need to do is just kind of watch our language. Just watch our language. You know, I, I was around somebody not too long ago, and they, they were just, you ever around people that just cuss constantly? You know what I mean? Just constantly. You know, it's like you died and went to an episode of Yellowstone kind of thing, you know? And they just cuss constantly. And, and I, I said to him, I said, you know, can I ask a question? I said, yeah. I said, what do you say when you get mad? <laughs> I feel like you've left nothing to use later. You know what I mean? I mean, there, there's nothing there. Uh, we need to speak undefiled words. And keep in mind that when the Bible says that uh, we are not to take the Lord's name in vain, that's a whole lot closer to filling a pause with, oh, God than it is barnyard language. What that really refers to is, is taking the name of God lightly. Barnyard language refers to inadequate raising. That's a kid needed to eat more soap growing up. But this is really talking about how we speak about God. 
undefiled language just means that our language is honoring to God. And we are cognizant of that. These are each indicators of a life that is aligned with Christ. The opposites are symptoms of lives not aligned with Christ. The more of the former virtues we see emerging in us, and, and we should be seeing more and more of this, um, the more sanctifying work that the Holy Spirit's doing in us. The more vices we see, uh, the more work there is to do. And if we find ourselves getting worse and not better, that's problematic. I'm not being a legalist here saying, not saying bad words takes you to heaven, but I am saying if you're right with Jesus, you'll say a whole lot fewer bad words. If you're right with Jesus, you'll be seeing these kind of things coming out of your life more and more, not less and less. And if they're coming out less and less, you need to ask yourself, what's wrong? What is wrong? I was always able to throw a football fairly well. I, I could toss it a, a long way even when I was older. I could throw a spiral. I could generally put a football where I wanted it. I, I just could do that until I tore my labrum and my rotator cuff in 2006. When the surgery was concluded and I emerged from rehab, I can do everything I used to do except throw a spiral. <laughs> I can't do it. I, I throw balls. They, they just look like wounded ducks. Even if I throw them hard, they, they, they're wounded ducks flapping harder. I, I cannot throw a spiral. My grip is fine. My form is fine. I look the same as I did before, but something must be different about my arm because the proof is in the football. I can claim all day that everything is just fine, but when I throw that ball and it's going like this, you're going to see things aren't just fine. There are a lot of people today who are claiming everything's just fine. I just want to ask each of us, let's just examine ourselves. Are we, what are we seeing come out of us? Are we seeing good things? Are we seeing bad things? And, and not only that, but are we getting better? Or do we appear to be getting worse? These are really important indicators. Every thought we have, Every action we engage in throws something out there. It throws something out there. And it offers us something profound to consider. And it produces a single question. And that's the question I want to close with tonight. How are you and Jesus? How you guys doing? And don't tell me you're doing great if your football's flapping in the wind. How are you in Jesus? We need to get honest about that. Are you headed in the right direction or are you heading in the wrong direction? Or have you been stagnant for so long it's hard to figure out if you're going any direction at all? How are you in Jesus? Do you tend to view people for what they can do for you? How are you in Jesus? Are you always in the process of rationalizing your own bad behavior? How are you in Jesus? 
Do you truly love the things of this world? How are you in Jesus? Do you get angry way too quickly? How are you in Jesus? Do words fly out of your mouth that dishonor God and disrespect people? How are you and Jesus? Are you having to apologize way too much? How are you in Jesus? When things consistently come out of us that are not what we wish, it indicates that something is misaligned with Christ. I want you to hear the good news. There is no condemnation. Some of you may be feeling condemned right now. There is no condemnation. Satan, there is no condemnation here. You don't get to do that here. There's only conviction. If God has revealed something to your heart, repent of your sin. May I break every single rule and quote a Bible verse that's not in Colossians? 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to say it one more time. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You say, I don't deserve to be forgiven. It isn't about you. <laughs> it's about who he is. And if he says he'll forgive us, he will. Yes, my friends, we're back. Would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we confess our sins to you, Lord. Those things that we know we do, those things that we don't know we do, but we see the damage of. Lord, we, we repent of those. We turn away from them. We turn towards you. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us, that you would empower us, that you would strengthen us, embolden us, that you would help us to see the blessings and the forgiveness and the grace that came through Christ. Help us to not be selfish and look at ourselves when we don't understand why we are, are free of these things that we do wrong, because it's just not about us. And Lord, we pray thanks for the incredible sacrifice of your son, for the blessings, the, the gift of grace that we are so undeserved of. And Lord, we pray here, now, tonight, that we could move forward. We can move forward in freedom from these burdens and baggage and, and sins that we have carried for far too long. Lord, we are grateful, we're thankful. We love you with all of our hearts. And we pray it in the strong and powerful name of Jesus' son. Amen. Christchurch, you have a blessed week. Go in peace.